uh, they stream, and they're able to participate with all of us uh, via the, the screen on their computer or their iPad. They, they can participate with us in worship. And uh, uh, one of our uh, younger sisters was, was blessed uh, by, by the assembly this morning. She actually took a snapshot of, of the screen while I was up here preaching and posted it on Facebook and talked about how great it was that our church can stream. And uh, one of the other sisters in our congregation, uh, they, they, you know, lots of people were saying, you know, hope you feel better, hope you feel better, hope you feel better. One sister said, man, those letters are taller than Mark. <laughs> I guarantee you they're five inches taller than me. <laughs> but this year's theme, uh, again, for those that were not here this morning, is amplify. And by that we mean to make big, to enlarge, to intensify, to magnify, to amplify anything is to make it hard to ignore, to amplify a voice like I'm doing right now with the, with the diva mic is to make it heard over all of the other voices, to amplify a guitar is to make it really distinct and to make it unforgettable, to amplify the faith is to make it stand out everywhere. And I want us to think for just a couple of minutes to, tonight what it might mean for us personally if we worked on amplifying the worship of God in spirit and in truth. A famous story that is told by uh, Paul Harvey when he was uh, still very active on the radio. It was a story about a very attractive female flight attendant who had been called to work kind of at the last minute on a short domestic flight. And as the story goes, as Harvey tells it, a very common thing took place on the plane. A man began to flirt with her. She was very attractive. Only on this particular flight, two men began to, to, to flirt with her. There was one up in first class, there was one back in the cargo section, in the economy class section, and the flirting really began to get out of control and she was beginning to, to be a little uh, aggravated and a little annoyed when, and thought really maybe she needed to do something about it when they got to the end of the flight and the man up in the first class section handed her a note with a key and an address on it and said, you know, um, see you later. She walked straight back to the back of the plane where the other guy was flirting with her, handed him the note and the key and said, don't be late. <laughs> Apparently a true story. And I think the moral of the story is this. An expected guest does not always show up. An expected guest does not always show up. And the question I want to ask is, could that possibly be true of God not showing up where His people most expect to find Him? At worship. Is it possible that God does not show up at worship? You know, you go back to that, that time when Isaiah is, is preaching hard to the people of, of, of South Judah. They have gotten away from, from a relationship with God even though they're going through the day-to-day -day, uh, codes and, and regulations and laws and, and they're actually going through the acts of worship obediently. But God sees so much that is wrong in their worship of Him because their heart does not reflect any of the reality of their actions. And there comes a point where God says, I am, I'm tired of your sacrifices I, I'm, I'm turning away from your prayers and the reason you have blood on your hands. There was a time, though, when that wasn't so. When Solomon built the temple that his father David wanted to build and, and uh, couldn't because there were blood on his hands, 
Solomon ended up building that temple and didn't assume that just because he built it, just because people showed up, that God would show up. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, he says, But will God really dwell on earth with humans? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. And he goes on, and at the end of that speech, he says, Now arise, Lord God, and come to your resting place. You in the ark of your might. May your priests, Lord God, be clothed with salvation. May your faithful people rejoice in your goodness. And then, in one of the most spectacular moments in the history of the world, since thorns and thistles had entered into creation, the glory of God... His kavod, His glory, His brightness, His presence, the heaviness of His being. The glory of God comes and it fills the temple in such a way that even those priests who tried to enter it could not enter into the temple. And then this happened. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshipped. And they worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, He is good. He is good. His love endures forever. This is, is, is really one of many passages that I think help us to get our mind around what worship is all about. Worship, as, as a definition, means to attribute worth. The old Anglo-Saxon word means uh, uh, to, to attribute worth, to give worth to, to, to something. The worship is more than just giving compliments. Worship is more than, than just, just saying the nice things that people expect to hear or, or people need to hear. Worship is not that at all. Uh, one, of, one of the people that have really helped me to understand worship through the years is C.S. Lewis. Uh, he wrote a little book that's not very well read these days. Uh, it's not one of his more famous ones, but it's called Reflections on the Psalms. And in there, he talks about, he reflects back on what the Psalms teach us about the worship of God and what it, the praise of God is really about. And sort of right there in the middle of the book, he says, uh, and he's, he's writing about in the early years of his life how he struggled with the whole idea of worship because he, he did see it as giving compliments. I mean, he got the idea of obedience. He got the idea of reverence. He got the idea of, of, of walking and being holy as God is holy. He got all of that. But what he did not get was this idea that God seemed to want us to compliment him all the time. That's how he viewed worship. And then he began to see through the Psalms something different. And he writes, and I quote, I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think it magnificent? The psalmist in telling everyone to praise God are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards the supremely valuable what we delight to do, what indeed we can't help doing about everything else we value. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not, only, not merely expresses but completes 
the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. End of quote. I have a young friend uh, probably going to be getting married uh, in the next year or so. And uh, he and his fiance are, are talking, uh, his fiance now, uh, they have decided to get married. But um, uh, in talking before the engagement, uh, in talking about their relationship and what's good about it and what's, what they would like to improve and, and dates and strategy and plans and directions and finances and all of these things and trying to talk logically through the whole idea of getting married, his girlfriend stops him right there in the middle of it and says, I want you to marry me. She says, I don't want you to marry me because it makes sense. I want you to marry me because you love me more than anybody else. And we get that, right? Worship happens when a truth about God is not just learned. That our God is a mighty fortress. That our God is a shepherd. That, that He is beautiful. And, and like the psalmist, we want to gaze upon that beauty in the, the temple. It's not just a truth about God that is learned, but it is a truth that is learned that strikes at the very center of our soul and we become thrilled. We become thrilled. I don't tell Ellen that I think she's the most beautiful person or the, the, the best person I know because I'm manipulating her or because it's out of some kind of, of, of spousal duty that I'm supposed to say those kinds of things and after I'm done with it, I can check it off of the list of things I'm supposed to do to be a good spouse in everybody else's eyes. And I don't do it just because I want her to know that, even though that's a part of it. But I do it because there's a part of her that when I see her, I thrill with everything about her. And that thrill is not complete when I'm in her presence until I have the opportunity to say what it is I need to say. This is why the worship of God is more than intellectualism. It's more than hearing that God is a shepherd. It's knowing God as a shepherd. Worship happens when the facts move from the left side of the brain to the right side of the brain. That is, from the mind into the heart and into the soul. And that's not the downsized doctrine. The truth of God we must know. But it is to recognize that those facts in the Bible, those truths, those stories, those narratives, those miracles, those psalms and those songs, they all reflect back on a real being who created the heavens and the earth, and oh, by the way, created us in love. One text to think about as we figure out how to amplify worship in our lives is, is this one. And when we get to this place, I think we will have gone a, a long way in amplifying worship in our lives as a church. Not just in corporate worship, but every day. And the text is Acts chapter 16, verse 22 through 25. Paul and Silas have gone to Philippi. Things are off to a great start, but then they turn south. 
Verse 22, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. You know what's happened. You know, he meets Lydia and the women down there by the river. Uh, the conversion, things are going great. There is, as he's preaching in Philippi, there is this demon-possessed woman. She actually has, in, literally, in, in the original language, she has the spirit of Python. And she is making a lot of money for her owner. She is a slave and she's demon-possessed. She's not only enslaved by men, but she's enslaved to evil. And she, is, uh, she does some things and in, 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 in shouting out as Paul is trying to preach and saying that you know, he's talking about Jesus and so on and so forth. But there comes a place where Paul becomes kind of irritated and he exercises, heals this young woman of the demon that is in her. She is healed and in her right mind. But this makes her owners very, very upset and they, they start trouble for Paul. And so this crowd joins in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates order them to be stripped and be beaten with rods. You start off the day, it's looking pretty good. And the next thing you know, you're being stripped of your shirt and you're being beaten with rods. And after they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into where? Prison. And the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. And when he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. And so emotionally, you got the day that has turned south. You've got everything kind of going well with all of the things that have happened with the women down by the river and the church and these kinds of things. But then you're preaching, there are crowds, and all of a sudden things are not so great as you actually bring a miracle in front of these people, and yet they don't see it as a miracle for the miracle that it is. They see it as a threat to their livelihood. The next thing you know, you're being beaten, and not just being beaten, but you're being severely flogged and not just let go and warned not to ever do it again. But now you're thrown in prison, and not just any prison cell, but an inner cell, and you're fastened with your feet in the stocks, which is never comfortable. Their legs are stretched out. But about midnight, and here it is the middle of the night, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. What this text really begins to do is to challenge, to challenge our notion of what is the right environment or what is the right culture or the right circumstance or situation or the right aesthetic for worship. Here is a place where things are not good. There is suffering and there is pain and there is blood and there is frustration and perhaps a little bit of nervousness. Frustration that the ministry has gone off track a little bit, not knowing that it's actually being put back on track by God that very moment. But Paul and Silas are in a place where most of us would not find the most conducive circumstances or locale for worship. And yet God and the truths of God and the experience of God have made God their treasure. And even though their freedom has been taken away, and part of their physical health has been taken away, and even though they are in a place where their security has been taken away because they don't know what tomorrow is going to bring, they have not been able to take the most important thing away from Paul and Silas, which is God. That is the treasure that he has in his heart that they can never take away. And he finds himself doing in that cell what what people who have intimacy with God would do in a place like that. And that's to praise God. To know God in such a way, that knowledge, 
of, of God's character, that knowledge of His goodness, that, that knowledge of God's love, to surpass all of the things that they're experiencing in a very visceral, physical way. And their hearts to be so full and to be so thrilled with the truths of God and the presence of God that even at midnight, in pain, they praise God. They praise God. And so as we think about worship this year, the more we learn about God, the more we need to allow those truths to go all the way down to the very center of who we are. Like that Coke machine that I talk about, the old Coke machines where you put that quarter in and sometimes that quarter would not go all the way down to the center and if you couldn't get that coin down into the center, you couldn't access what it is that that machine offered. But if you could listen to it and you could hear that coin rattle all the way down to the very center of it and you heard it hit the very the, the money box right there at the heart of that machine, then you were able to access the goods. Scripture needs to get all the way down on the very inside of us in such a way that we're thrilled. That we become joyful. And we see that beauty of God in a way, and we experience that beauty of God in such a way that, that it's not complete if it just stays inside of us. It's not going to be healthy if it just stays inside of us. That it becomes complete when we're able to express it. To express it in praise and to express it in worship. Jeff's going to lead us in a song right now, a song of invitation. And that's a, an invitation for us right now to think very deeply about our life in light of the truths and the doctrine and the reality of God. And to know that, that, that God knows all of our circumstances. And perhaps you're in a circumstance right now that, well, you could use, you could use some help in encountering that God and, and, and finding yourself in the presence of that God in a situation like Paul and like Silas where it's not very positive, where it's probably quite a bit painful. Prayers of the church and the encouragement of the church and the counsel of your, your spiritual leaders, your shepherds, to help you get to that place that even regardless of the things that are happening in your life right now, you find yourself thrilled with the truth of God and how that truth hits you in the heart, the very center of your being. Or it might be that you've never known that God. Christ Jesus brings you that knowledge. Not only in His own person, but through this experience of salvation and the forgiveness of sin and the experience of the gift of the Holy Spirit that not only helps us to understand that Word and leads us into wisdom, but it's God's love that is poured into our hearts through God's Spirit. You experience that by giving your life to Him tonight. And if that describes you, then as these shepherds are down here at the front, come down and talk to Him about the things that are on your heart, that are heaped up on your heart as we stand and praise God together. Open my